Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 970. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 14, 970 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building you up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You may have a seat. Amen. All right, good to see you all. We are going to finish our study, um, the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. So if you want to turn back there, if um, you closed your Bible after the scripture reading, the passage that Tyler read is our passage for this morning, and if you're visiting with us, we've actually walked through the entirety of this book. Um, so it's our typical pattern is book after book, um, because you don't need my um, creative opinions and ideas. I'd probably run out of them pretty quickly. We need to hear what God has to say. So we study his word because he's spoken to us, and uh, we let his word set the agenda as we study through it week by week. So um, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and um, so this book, uh, especially here at the end, the issue of weakness and power has been at the forefront, and it's really the heart of our passage this morning, and as I was thinking about that, weakness and power, um, I thought of another parallel and even bigger illustration of this. So, you know, in Matthew 26, you remember when um, Jesus is in the garden 
and Judas comes with the soldiers and they're going to arrest Jesus and take him away. And Peter uh, yanks out his sword <laughs> and he's going for the head. The guy goes like this. That's why he cut his ear off. Um, so he was a zealot and he was going to fight for his uh, Messiah here. Jesus said, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So imagine being one of those soldiers at that moment listening in on this conversation, or maybe just being Peter. We'll kind of try to put ourselves into both shoes, a soldier and Peter. So for the soldier, that probably sounded like the crazy overheated claims of some unhinged cult leader. So God is your father, and if you said the word, he would send over 72,000 angels. Right, okay. So a full Roman legion was like 6,000 soldiers, okay? So he'd heard crazies before. They're crazy claims. He'd heard them before. And you know what? Against the might of Rome, they didn't usually make out so well. Just stupid fools. So messiahs, you know, these saviors come. They can talk really tough, but the lash tends to cut them down to size. They're really pretty weak. Or imagine Peter. So he probably wanted Jesus to call down those 72,000 angels to swoop down and destroy all of the Romans that you know, were oppressing the uh, Jews at the time. That was the kind of power that he wanted to see. So this quiet yielding by Jesus, it just seemed like surrender and defeat. I mean, so like a lamb... Before shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. So Jesus goes quietly, meekly to that, you know, court proceeding, kind of kangaroo court. But this weakness was not forever. It is not forever. So another place where angels factor into the picture, he could have called 72,000 of them, but he didn't. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to believers who are persevering through affliction and, and persecution. And then he says this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So he didn't call 72,000 angels, but one day they are coming. Weakness, power. So don't mistake weakness or meekness or mercy for impotence or tolerance. So Jesus didn't call those 12 legions of angels for a reason, and it's the same thing in our passage in 2 Corinthians 13. Paul could have judged the Corinthians because of how they'd been so rebellious against him and ultimately against God, 
but he didn't for a reason. He was incredibly patient and merciful toward them, not because he didn't have the nerve to judge them, but because of mercy and love. And yet, that mercy and patience wasn't going to last forever. And that's why we find this pretty sobering language in 2 Corinthians 13 at the end of this letter that he's writing to the church in Corinth, okay? So this series is called Cruciform Ministry, um, Ministry in the Shape Shaped by the Cross. So 1 Corinthians, we walked through that book first. The Cruciform Life, if we're going to follow after Jesus, our lives should be shaped by the cross. Jesus laid his life down for us to save us and to change us so we're so naturally committed to ourselves selfishly turned in on ourselves and we're slaves of our sin jesus died to save us to give us new hearts that open up to god loving him with all of our heart and loving our neighbors out to others so we put our pride to death our lives are shaped by the cross so that we can love And then people that do follow Jesus, they love ministry, cruciform ministry. And it's sacrificial. And oftentimes we die to our own desires in order to love and bless and serve others. And Paul was a beautiful example of that in the way that he loved the Corinthians. He suffered immensely for their good. And oftentimes they didn't get it and they, you know, criticized him. So He's had a lot of interaction with them. This is at least the fourth letter um, that he's written to them. And the book breaks down kind of in three main sections. The first seven chapters focus mainly on explaining things. He's trying to defend his ministry, explain it, because there's these false apostles that had followed him and were undermining his ministry. So he had to defend things and explain things. But ultimately, it was to win them back. And chapters 8 and 9 basically focus on their present response, how they ought to respond in the present. And then chapters 10 to 13 focus on his future upcoming third visit. So first half is this defense of his ministry. Chapter 7 to 9 roughly is written to a repentant majority. Most of the church kind of responded to his... um, Letter He had written a letter in between what we know as First and Second Corinthians, and most of them responded, but there were still some holdouts, still some people that were pretty, um, you know, rebellious and critical of him. And so chapters 10 to 13 are focused on application for that rebellious minority. And so this chapter, chapter 13, starts off with a warning. Okay, really it runs verses 1 to 10, but we're going to especially focus on verses 1 to 4. So look again there at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 on page 970 if you're using the Pew Bible. And I'll read here the first four verses. Um, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others... And I warn them now, and I warn them now, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. 
For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So this, this passage doesn't make sense if you don't know the book as a whole. But also, I want to zoom out even further and put this passage, in a sense, in the context of the whole story of the Bible. Okay, almost a cosmically big picture perspective. So the world, did you know this? The world is actually a cosmic courtroom. It's a lot of other things. <laughs> but the world is a cosmic courtroom. God is the judge of all the earth. He's a lot of other things, right? He's a father and a shepherd and a, you know, a rock and a refuge and a help, but he is a judge. He's just. He sees everything. He knows everything. He takes no bribes. He's perfectly and unbendingly just. No one's getting away with anything in this universe. So sometimes he executes justice all by himself. He certainly doesn't need any counsel. <laughs> He's not in need of a jury. He is judge, and he can also be prosecuting attorney and jury <laughs> all by himself. But God the judge has also oftentimes mediated his justice, his pardon and his condemnation through people. So he's judged and vindicated his people by means of other people, okay? By means of his people. So he's used prophets in the past as prosecuting attorneys. If you read some of the Old Testament prophets, that's kind of what, it's almost a sense you get. And there's language used that is very much like courtroom language. In a sense, he sometimes uses the church as a jury. This is kind of what Paul was exhorting the Corinthians to do back in 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, more than just a jury. They were to actually um, pronounce judgment. So flip back there to 1 Corinthians 5 and see this. So there was this church member in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother. Ah, and they weren't doing anything about it. So look at verse Look at verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be, may be saved in the day of the Lord. I mean, still, there's a holdout for rescue from this gross sin, but the point is, we can't just leave that undealt with. It's got to be dealt with. You've got to judge this. It's also what Paul exhorted the Corinthians to do back in 2 Corinthians 2. So flip ahead, if you're back there in 1 Corinthians 5, flip ahead to 2 Corinthians 2. So not just judgment in the sense of, you know, kicking out someone who is involved in gross sin and not repentant, but also pardoning and forgiving and comforting those who are repentant. So there was this guy, apparently, who most likely led the rebellion against Paul. When Paul came on his second visit, he met this opposition, and rather than judge him on the spot, he withdrew and wrote a letter to them to call them to repentance. So there was probably a ringleader there, and it seems like maybe he had repented. Well, 
this guy did repent, but it seems like that's the guy who's repenting here. So he caused the whole church community a fair amount of trouble. But again, he repented. So Paul wanted him to be pardoned and forgiven. So look at chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, even though he rebelled against Paul, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Paul cares more about them than he does about himself. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. So do you see God is rendering judgment through his people back in 1 Corinthians 5, and here he's also bringing reconciliation and restoration through his people. Okay, you're, you're pardoned. You need to be warmly welcomed there in 2 Corinthians 2. So, this is also what's going on now in 2 Corinthians 13. The judgment of God is being mediated through the Apostle Paul. Okay, so look at how he uses this language of the courtroom. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, Third time he's coming, the first time he planted the church. You can read about that in Acts 18. Second visit was a painful one. I mentioned that. He met this strong strong opposition. He withdrew, wrote a letter, not because he was too wimpy, not because they intimidated him, but because he didn't want to judge him on the spot because he was merciful just like Jesus is merciful. He's patient and kind like Jesus. He wanted to give them time to repent, so he went back and wrote that letter. It was to spare them. Okay, so most had responded, but some still rebellious. And so here, this last chapter, these last few chapters, is this final warning before his arrival, this third visit. And he's saying, if you don't repent, I'm going to have to judge you. Okay? So he casts this relationship in these judicial or forensic terms. He, he basically refers to Deuteronomy 19.15 this um, language about two or three witnesses. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So back in Deuteronomy 19, that was originally in a regulation that was aimed at preventing some spiteful individual from either making up or exaggerating accusations in order to win some personal vendetta. I mean, you can imagine how this could happen, right? If there's no other witnesses, you could just come up with anything. So to guard against that, there was this regulation, only if it's established by two or three witnesses. Okay, so Paul has been careful. Others like Titus know the situation, and, they've, and so they've been duly warned. So when he comes a third time, Paul's not, you know, one to give some snap judgment because he, uh, you know, gets angry quickly. He's very slow and merciful and gracious, just like God, but he's not going to spare them forever. He will judge them. So this would probably mean at least excommunication, being barred from the the table, the communion table, but it could possibly be more. Do you remember back in 1 Corinthians 11 where the Lord's table, like it was so ugly, they're just kind of selfishly focused on themselves and not considering others and people that had had a lot were getting, you know, drunk and they're eating plenty like gluttons and then there's other poor members that have nothing to eat at these love feasts. And so Paul says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It's like there's discipline 
that's pretty severe here. Or remember Ananias and Sapphira? That's pretty sobering judgment. Or there was a time there was a guy named Elymas the magician, (laughs) and he was seeking to kind of turn people away from the Lord, and Paul looked at him and called him out, and he was blinded. So, again, basically Paul's warning them with this final warning, you've sought for proof that Christ is speaking through me. If you don't repent, you're going to have that proof, and you're not going to like it. You're going to get more than you bargained for because the almighty risen Christ stands behind Paul's warnings. So, do you remember when uh, in Acts 9, Paul, this is before he was converted, he's you know, persecuting the church. He's going to drag off more to prison from Damascus. And on the road, the Lord Jesus confronts him. And it says this, Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you oppose the people of God and his shepherds, his ambassadors, you're ultimately picking a fight with King Jesus. That's never going to go well. Not a good idea. So here's why I think this is where we bring it to a point where it's applicable to us here this morning. We've got to wrestle with this, okay? We do live in a world that is governed by the judge of all the earth. And you know what? We live in a time when we have very little respect for authority. So our default, I don't know about you, but... I think oftentimes this is the case. Our default is to believe the disgruntled employee or congregant or customer and be suspicious of the boss, the spiritual leaders, or the company. Now, why is that? It's because there's good reason to, right? There's so much abuse of authority, right? But wouldn't it be easy to overswing on this and kind of write off all authority and be suspicious of all authority, and that would play right into Satan's hands, right? So we're often suspicious of authority, and again, for good reason, but we can so easily, I mean, this just goes along with our selfishness and our desire to be at the center of our own little world. We chafe, we resent, we resist authority, and sometimes we just dismiss it. But when it comes to the church of Jesus, the authority of the church is not to be trifled with. Flip over, and I'm having you flip because I know it's a little cold in here. Um, So just trying to keep you awake, keep you warm. Um, Actually, the temperature is a nefarious plot um, to keep you all awake and to uh, make you long for this coolness when it takes a little while for our AC to be replaced. And the first couple weeks of June, we might still not have it. And... You're going to wish for this cold morning. Um, Anyway, no, that is in works. Okay, we're totally getting off topic. Okay, turn back to Matthew 18. The authority of the church is not to be trifled with. So we know this passage. We talk about it typically as church discipline. And again, it's supposed to be good, all for the sake of restoration. But... We need to see one thing in particular here. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's the point. Restoration, forgiveness, reconciliation. 
Lots of that should be happening, and it just stops right there. It doesn't go any further. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, referring to Deuteronomy 19, just like Paul. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. More arms waving, like, don't go down this dangerous path. We love you. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, basically as an unbeliever. Doesn't mean he necessarily is or she necessarily is, but at least you treat them that way until they show otherwise. Truly I say to you, and here's the point, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's weird language. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, the whole point is, these decisions that are made in the context of the church are not just made in a corner by, you know, people and it doesn't really matter. No, no, no. The authority of King Jesus is is behind these decisions. There I am with them. What you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So these are the authority of King Jesus mediated through his people. This is not to be trifled with. Now certainly there can be discipline that's handled poorly for the wrong reasons, but when it's done for the right reasons by God's people, It's not just done in a corner. This is a cosmic decision. We don't want to trifle with this. So again, we live in a world shaped by authority structures. That's by God's institution. We can't escape it. Heaven is not a place where there's no authority. (laughs) If that's what freedom sounds like to you, or if that's what you'd want it to be like in heaven, be careful because maybe what you want is to be God. So let's just... Stop looking out there all around and look in here and say, okay, what does this have to do with me? Well, here were some Corinthians that claimed to be believers, and by their lives, Paul was saying, if you don't repent, you're going to be judged. If you are inclined to be really critical of others, but not particularly self-critical, if you're inclined to judge others with harshness, but you want understanding and mercy for yourself, if you are often suspicious of the motives of others, but not suspicious of your own deceitful heart, if you'd be much more inclined to trust your own perception of yourself than maybe a mature believer in your life who's challenged you on something, then this text is a kindness It's a mercy, and it's intended to kind of get up in your face, but it's in order to wake you up. It's God encouraging you to do some self-examination. So second point, examination, verses 5 to 7. This is where Paul goes with the Corinthians and with us here. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So these Corinthians had sought proof of Paul's apostleship. Now he's actually turning the tables on them. 
He's exhorting them to prove themselves, the reality of their own faith. So David Garland summarized this really well when he said, they should be examining themselves, not cross-examining him. Okay, so he's saying to them, you've been testing me when you really should have been testing your own hearts. Paul's had to defend himself, not because he's on the defensive. He was doing it in order to win the Corinthians back from these abusive false apostles. It'd be like health wealth preachers of today. Imagine some of our people started to follow after, you know, Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or something like that. Oh, don't go that way. We would say to go that way is to go away from Jesus. So Paul wasn't defending himself for selfish reasons because he he was afraid of what they'd think of him. He was doing it for their sake, not for the sake of his reputation. So it wasn't Paul that was on trial, really. It was actually them. They were on trial. Okay, so I've given this illustration, it was a while ago, um, but one of my professors in seminary told this story about the hippies in the Louvre. Okay, so the Louvre is the museum in France, right? So, and this is nothing against hippies. Um, I think hippies are great. So I think we should bring, bring the bell bottoms back. Um, so anyway, so there are, the, there are these uncouth hippies in the Louvre, and they're walking around, and they're making these, like, ignorant, snide comments, critical comments about these masterpieces. You know, Monet and Picasso and whatever. And the curator, the director guy of the museum is standing back, and he's, like, really getting fed up with this, and he finally has had enough. And he comes over to these guys, and he says, Gentlemen, In this museum, it is not the paintings that are being tested. They are masterpieces. If you criticize them and scoff at them, you indict yourself as a fool. So that's what's going on here, although Paul is not saying it in so many words to kind of back them into the corner, but the point is, If you are putting me on trial and testing me, you're not actually indicting me. You're indicting yourself. Okay? So we need to be careful of our tendency to this self-referentialism, right? We kind of like are spring-loaded to kind of consider or think that we see everything with perfect clarity as if We are the wise judge of all the earth. So again, if you are critical of everyone and everything, then we end up indicting ourselves. So this is a call to perform a spiritual audit of sorts, to take stock. So Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Not only is it not worth living, it's dangerous. Could be eternally dangerous. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. The Bible tells us this. Like we can trust God's word more than our own perception. Our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah 17. Sin is deceitful. Hebrews 3. The world is deceitful. It wants to squeeze us into its mold. The evil one, he's a liar and a deceiver. 
So we need to be careful and examine ourselves. You know there's going to be people that are in church today somewhere that are going to be surprised when Jesus comes back. Jesus said it himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is in Matthew 7, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or how about a little bit later in Matthew, chapter 25, the sheep and the goats. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, Lord. They called him Lord. When? Did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So our hearts are deceitful. Sin is deceitful. The world's deceitful. Satan's deceitful. Like we need each other. We've got blind spots. Like, oh, we need spiritual leaders. We need... Spiritual leaders need accountability because spiritual leaders can have blind spots, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need this. So maybe you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith this morning. But as soon as I say that, I want to give a qualification here. We need to be careful. Spiritual blindness, living an unexamined life, that's dangerous. But there's also a danger of overswinging and becoming a navel gazer and like endlessly introspective. And this is especially dangerous for those who have really sensitive consciences. So you just need to know, especially those of you that are really hypersensitive to your sin and always feeling guilty and always, you know, painfully aware of your sin and whatever. You need to know that this text is primarily aimed at afflicting the comfortable, (laughs) not afflicting the afflicted. Oftentimes, those who are painfully aware of their sin need to be comforted by the gospel, not afflicted by warnings like this. So, it kind of brings up the issue of assurance, doesn't it? How do I know I'm real? Anybody ever wrestled with that one? Okay, I'm the only one. Maybe I should just... Oh, okay, there were a few... Slow to be raised arms. Okay, so we could spend a whole series of sermons on that, but let me just share a few thoughts here. Where does assurance come from? Well, I think there's, we could kind of boil it down to three primary sources. One is objective and out there, outside of you. It's actually in history. This is the primary source of assurance. It's the cross. If you want to know that God loves you, If you want to know that God is gracious and merciful and kind to sinners, you look to the cross. So that hippies in the Louvre thing came from Don Carson. I'm going to give another Don Carson illustration. Um, Because again, you need to understand how important this, the fact that it's out there and it's true, even if your faith is weak and, and kind of unsteady. So imagine 
couple of Israelites back at the time of the Passover in Egypt, right? And God said, hey, you kill the lamb, you put the blood over the doorposts, and then I'll come through, and if the blood's on the doorposts, no death, right? So imagine two Israelite guys, after they've done this, they have a little conversation, and one guy says, oh, I'm just really anxious about tomorrow, like I just, I love my son, I know, I know this is what God said, but he's just really anxious. What if, and you know, he put the blood over the door, I, I trust him, but, you know, and then the other guy, no, God said it, I believe it, you know, like I'm going to sleep well, I don't need a sleeping pill. <laughs> Next morning, wake up. Whose son died? Neither. Because the blood was the decisive factor. Weak, trembling faith, but faith, there was blood over that doorpost. Strong faith, but there was blood over that doorpost. Why did the angel pass over? Not be, well, your faith isn't strong enough. No, it's the blood. So we can do this thing where, you know, we're like peeling back the onion and, oh, do I have enough faith? You know, for every one look in, take 10 to Jesus. That's where the confidence comes from. That's where the assurance comes from. It comes from seeing the greatness, the goodness, the mercy, the kindness of your Savior. So let's look, 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 look. Okay? But also the Bible talks about subjective, more subjective um, sources of assurance. Okay, so we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to believe the gospel. And if you are here and you're not sure because you've never trusted Christ, you can believe this gospel. Jesus died for sinners just like you. So you can actually embrace that this morning and trust him and know that your sins are forgiven, it's all cleansed, all taken care of, and you can be reconciled to God and have him forever. Okay? But when that takes place, we get changed from the inside out. And so there is fruit of that faith, right? When the faith is real, there's fruit. It's not going to look the same in all of us. But the book of 1 John, the book of James, especially chapter 2, shows that if we have genuine faith, it bears fruit. So there's a way to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. You can look at those passages and do some of that self-examination. And then finally, there's an internal and subjective component, the work of the Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit. So for instance, in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So when you suffer, where do you run? If you suffer and you cry out, Father, help. I think sometimes we, we have the sense that maybe this uh, testimony of the Spirit is something, you know, only super Christians experience. If you suffer and struggle and you run to God as your Father, why are you doing that? That's the Spirit of God testifying with your spirit that he's your Father and you can go to him for help. Okay, so now let's look at Paul's heart in all of this. There's some stuff on examination and assurance. But let's look at Paul's heart here. It's a reflection of God's heart. Verse 6, I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test, 
but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Ugh, what are you talking about, Paul? (laughs) So this might not look like much except confusing on the surface, but there is so much cruciform love here, so just pay attention here. He doesn't want them to fail the test. He wants them to come to repentance so that he doesn't have to judge anyone when he arrives for the third visit. It's his prayer that they'll respond to his instruction. The point is not that Paul would be vindicated before the false apostles. Ha! I win. Not that we may appear to have met the test. That's not what he's after. He wants them to repent and respond in faith, doing what's right. And you know what? Here's the thing. If that actually happens, it may feed right into the narrative of those false apostles. It might seem like Paul has failed. Here's here's what I mean. The Corinthians have been seeking proof, right? The rebellious ones have been seeking proof. They've been wanting an impressive display of the power of this apostle, of Paul. He's been intentionally weak, suffering for them, following in the footsteps of Jesus, the crucified Messiah. And if they are unrepentant, he will have to display his apostolic power. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants them to be restored instead. So if they actually repent, how's he going to come on that third visit? He's going to come with meekness and gentleness again. So you can imagine the false apostles scoffing, yeah, of course he's meek and gentle. That's all he's got. If you hadn't given in and repented, you would have seen that all those warnings about judgment were just a bunch of hot air. You see? So he's not even going to have the chance to prove his power if they actually repent. But Paul says, I don't even care. Because I don't care how I look in this. I care that you're restored. That's my main goal. So point number three, restoration, verses 9 to 10. Did you guys track with that? Okay. For we are glad when we are weak. (laughs) Paul just, again, he's totally died to his, his own selfish desires. He's living for their good. We are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come... I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is cruciform ministry. The point is restoration. Colin Cruz, a commentator, summarizes it well. He says, It's a mark of the apostles' Christian maturity and commitment to the purposes of God that in the face of the defection of his converts and their calling into question his apostleship, His overriding concern is not self-justification, but rather their restoration, that their moral failures should be put right. So, so gracious and patient, but again, he's not going to hold out forever. Um, But this is the balance we've got to strike in our ministry as well. Incredibly gracious, long-suffering, patient, but then there does come a time when sin's got to be dealt with and dealt with in a decisive way. I I read this week, um, commentator said, an undisciplined church sooner or later multiplies its sin. And I thought of David with Absalom. He didn't deal with it, and the whole nation paid for it. 
So, we close with an exhortation and a blessing. And this exhortation here in verses 11 to 13 is really like the book in a nutshell. And then the blessing is the grace to live it out. So, real briefly, um, these last several verses, um, exhortation in, in verses 11 to 13 first. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Do you remember back in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 24, he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we're workers together with you for your joy. He was fighting for their joy. He wants them to rejoice in the Lord. He wants their joy to be full. So finally, brothers, rejoice. I'm trying to deal with all the threats to your joy. Aim for restoration. He wants healing and health for this church. And that's what God wants for us as well. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Early on, the Corinthian church was just marked with all kinds of division and factions and strife and jealousy and superiority complexes and selfishness and all of this. And here, again, this nutshell exhortation Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. How are you going to do that? <laughs> you're going to need grace. You're going to need help. And that's where the book ends with this blessing in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So no pride, no more self the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, eternally heavenly rich, he made himself poor so that we through his poverty might be enriched spiritually. So God was willing to humble himself to raise us up. Why would we hold on to our pride and our selfishness if we know that grace? So this is the cross shaping our lives, shaping our ministry, shaping our church. And you know what's really cool? If you read Acts 20 and Romans 15, there's good reason to believe that the church actually heeded this letter. And they responded. So may this letter also have its gracious intent and effect on us as well. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to sing, sing a song before we are dismissed. Father, I pray that you would please pour out your grace on us through Jesus, that we would... Rejoice in the Lord, the Lord who saved us, the Lord who humbled himself, the Lord who took our sin, the Lord who gave us all of his very great and precious promises. I pray that any division or strife or cliques or factions or whatever would just be blown up by the unity that the cross creates. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So I pray that there would be restoration where we need to be bound up and healed and strengthened and reclaimed. I pray that we would comfort and welcome each other. 
not hold each other out at arm's length. I pray that we would agree with one another in the Lord. There would be sweet unity in Christ, that we would live in peace, and that we would want to share that joy and restoring grace and comfort and peace with so many others. So do it, Lord, by your amazing grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.